Hello, and welcome to the super spooky 13th episode. It's not that spooky, but happy Friday the 13th. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash breaching extinction. Over 180 titles to choose from on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. This week, Ellie had the opportunity to interview Barry Swanson, founder of nonprofit Salish Sea Orca Squad and author of Lost Frequency, which is available on Audible. Check it out. Hello. Hi. Hi, Barry. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Good. little technical difficulty there. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. Um, you've been, you've probably been talking to Erica. My name's Ellie. I'm her, uh, I'm her, one of her contributors, her, her co-host. Um, how are you doing today? I'm awesome. Thank you. How about yourself? I'm great. It sounds like you're in California. That, that must be nice. Nice weather up there. Yeah. Down there. Yeah. Yeah, there's. I'm not in Monterey, so I'm not observing well right now. But it's just oh, a nice, nice. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, Erica's actually going to be moving there soon, so she's going to be doing oh, really? marine naturalizing too. down there. Uh, she's doing. I think she's going to be okay. doing doing out of there. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, awesome. I'm glad to glad to talk to you today. Um. So I guess we'll just get right into it. Um, so I've got your book right here, actually, and lost frequency. Um, you describe yourself on the back of the book as a marine naturalist and a steward of the environment. And I was just really curious what drew you a to marine biology and then to killer whales and specifically, and really specifically the Southern residents. Sure. Yeah. Let me just start with, um, you know, I grew up in and around the Salish Sea as a child and then as a young adult. And we spent, my family and I spent a considerable amount of time boating uh, in and around the San Juans, the Gulf Islands, up the coast, all the way up to the Broughton Islands. And as a youngster and then as a, as a young man, uh, the wildlife in the Salish Sea captivated me and, you know, made me wonder what was life like for these, for these creatures. So, you know, we were fortunate when you, when you move that to the, to the Southern resident killer whales, to the orcas um, that are resident in the, uh, in the sailor sea, they were really elusive, you know, back then, but what we were seeing was the Southern resident orcas. And maybe we didn't know it at the time. There were very few transients around then. Um, they were captivating. They were magical, um, mystical. And on occasion, we would see them. And uh, it, it just, you know, as I said, the word captivated comes to mind. Um, I was very inspired by them. Very cool. And did that kind of cap- captivation, I guess, and inspiration, did that lead you to write Lost Frequency and... And what other, what other inspirations really brought you to, to conceptualize Lost Frequency? Yeah, I, I traveled a lot, you know, between Victoria and uh, Vancouver, either on the BC ferries or on the float plane uh, in the 80s and the 90s. And I, I used to covet the, uh, you know, the cabins that lined the water, waterfronts in the Gulf Islands and, and hope that one day I would, I would have a cabin there and, and that 
came to fruition uh, a few years ago. And ironically, the day that we moved in, um, a pod of killer whales came into our bay. It was almost like they were coming to say hello. And uh, wow. it, was, it was just magical. It kind of took me back to the times when I was a kid and, and I was on the ocean. So I felt like I was back um, where I should be. And from there, um, you know, sleeping on the island and so forth, uh, I started to, to have these amazing uh, vivid dreams. And there was a female mother orca that, that kind of came to me and shared her thoughts with me in these dreams that I was having. And she had a very sick, uh, young calf son. And she, you know, it's not really clear, but it was, it was very vivid, but not clear what her message was, but she was, I thought she was asking for, for help. And, and it really, um, it really struck me so much so that I, uh, my wife and I actually took a, a marine naturalist course, uh, and uh, I pledged that I was going to try to create a story that would include historical facts and history about the SRKWs, but also um, created in such a way that it was fiction and could reach. Uh, a bigger audience. You know, there's lots of great, fantastic scientific data and books that have been written by wonderful people, but the average mm -hmm. person doesn't find those very accessible. So I thought, how can we uh, create something that maybe just the average person that that's busy working and wouldn't otherwise think about the SRKWs, you know, maybe they would pick this book up. So that's where that's, the idea came from. That's really cool. And I, I mean, I, I feel very called to environmental education and making it accessible, which is kind of why Eric and I are here. Um, but that's, that's really, that's really cool to hear. Um, last, uh, so last frequency, I mean, you clearly made it so that there is all this knowledge and, and you really want to focus on the cetaceans that live here in the Salish Sea. Um, what educational takeaways, I guess, do you, do you hope for your readers? Do you, do you want them to just have that basic information about the whales or is there something bigger that you want them to take away? Yeah, great question. You know, um, if I could just spend a couple minutes here, uh, orcas in their current carnation have been on this planet for over 10 million years, probably more like 11 million years. And you know, Homo sapien, while well, well, humans have been um, on the planet for, you know, it's debatable, but maybe let's just say around 200,000 years. And so that means that, you know, orcas have been around about 50 times longer than, than human beings, 50 times. And uh, the orcas that are here today, uh, they're, they're in every ocean and in, and in many of the seas and waterways uh, on the globe. But there's only a total of about 50,000 of them. 50,000. How many human beings are there? At? What, is, what is the current? Is it seven and a half billion? Yeah. yeah I was going to so, say, I think it's seven and a half. Yeah. So, you know, the educational takeaways for me are that, um, you know, first of all, they're critically endangered and we'll get to that. But Orcas are, you know, everything in science, you know, demonstrates to us that orcas are incredibly intelligent. They have a language that's unique. They have a unique dialect in each pod. 
they're they're sensitive we've observed them now with drones and they're incredibly tactile and they're family oriented um i think that most people that read about orcas understand that males in particular never leave their mother's side their whole lives you know they'll leave for an hour or two to forage or to play or procreate but they're with their mother and and when their mother dies um they have a hard time the males have a hard time uh surviving orcas will um swim you know up to and and more than 100 miles uh per day they 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 never stop moving which is fascinating and and kind of the real kicker that I'd like to highlight is that they're they're an apex predator so every ocean that they're in they are the king they are the apex predator and without them that ecological system within that ocean or sea will fail without them so they've got to be there to do their job too so that that's um kind of it in a nutshell from i think an educational from 10,000 feet from an educational perspective very cool um let's see um so i guess kind of bouncing off that then um you set lost frequency in the future and it's not too terribly fu- in the future now um but 2020 is coming up um, and in right. this future, you, you detail that the Southern residents are rebounding. You, you put them at a population of 82 individuals. Um, right. uh, do you, do you feel optimistic about the future of the Southern resident population now? Um, especially now that their population is down to 73. How, what, what, what is yeah. your, what is your feeling on that? Yeah. Just to clarify the, um, you mentioned 82 that would have probably been uh, early on in the book. And that was a flashback that one of the characters was having to a visit that okay. he had had with his father. And so that would have been, um, he would have been flashing back to the nineties when there was 82 members. Um, okay. frankly, going forward, I don't feel good about the future for the Southern resident killer whales. Uh, you know, we need to act now, you know, the people in the know, the scientists, and there's some great ones, they're harping and pounding the table about how we need to restore these estuaries and waterways for these salmon, because that is the key for these fish eaters. They are in trouble. And uh, I can't stress that enough. All the reading that I've done, the people that I've spoken with, that's the number one problem, clearly. So, uh, you know, we've got issues with farm salmon, toxicity. We need to get those farm salmon out of uh, our waterways, out of the oceans, so they don't continue to contaminate our wild stock populations. And that's something that there's wonderful people that are working on this, but we've got a long way to go. It, we're, it's dire straits for the uh, SRKWs. This is it. Um, you know, having said that, you know, we were up on a, on a one week whale watching tour up north, uh, primarily land based, um, this past summer and the northern residents, people think they're doing so well. And actually, you know what? They're doing much better than the, than the southerns, but they're, they're feeling it too. And their salmon, uh, numbers that they prey on are, are way down as well. So, um, it's, it's a common theme here. It really is. Very cool. And just to kind of tack onto that, um, I know there's been a lot of, a lot of focus on, um, river blockages as well. And especially down here in the States, I mean, the, the mm-hmm. snake river dams have been a real, yeah. uh, place of focus. Um, but I know the, on, on your, on your side of the border, um, the Fraser river is, is really big. What, what kind of, um, activism have you, have you seen surrounding 
freeing the Fraser at all? It's not as significant as what you're seeing in the calls that you're seeing that are coming out of uh, Washington State and Oregon State. Um, you know, in particular with Washington State, obviously there's, you know, a big cry to uh, Governor Inslee to uh, breach those dams on the Snake River. Um, the, um, the Fraser River is, is a slightly different beast. Um, and clearly, you know, the toxicity, the pollution that's been building up there for a number of years is having a major effect. The waterways are being blocked. The estuaries aren't, aren't there. The habitat, as I understand, and again, I'm not a scientist, but uh, all the reading that I do, uh, you know, tells me that, you know, the Fraser River needs to be cleaned up. We need to restore these habitats, right? That's the key, you know, not only for the fish coming up the river, but for the fry coming down the river, they need mm -hmm. to uh, get used to the ocean waters. They need to forage prior to heading out into the ocean. And so they need for these habitats to be pristine and uh, they're not. So we, we can do something about it. It's, it's, it's not impossible. Right. Very cool. Okay. Um, let's see then. Uh, switching gears, I guess. Um, in your book, the owner of the SeaWorld equivalent One World expresses a desire to see his whales go to sanctuaries and his final words to his son. Um, what, do you, what do you think it would take for places like SeaWorld and Miami Seaquarium to have the change of heart that James Parker did in your book? Yeah, it, it's a real tough one because it's all about money, right? And, yeah. you know, um, people talk about, you know, first of all, let's, let's put the framework in place here. Uh, I think that there's probably around 20 orcas, you know, let's not forget about all the other dolphins, the bottlenose and so forth. But if we're just talking about the orcas, there's about 20 in, in the sea world, um, aquariums in the United States right now. There's one that we all love, um, uh, that's in the, um, Miami sea aquarium. That's, um, uh, Lolita, and of course she's been there since 1970, which is really hard to believe. Um, and then in Canada, we have one orca in captivity in Ontario at Marineland. Um, you know, it's going to be really tough. And there are some good arguments um, on the captivity side. And I, I really cringe when I say that. But, you know, most of these creatures have been born in captivity. There are very few that are that are now alive that have been taken from the wild and they don't have a clue as to how to survive. And when you read any scientific paper, that's the first issue that's brought up. So again, science is telling us that we can't just simply release these creatures. One of the things that really is disturbing is uh, over in China, there are over 870 cetaceans now in captivity in a total of 60, six zero marine parks just in China. There are another 12 parks being built. Uh, I believe there's 16 orcas now in captivity in China with, I think they're going to double that size is the plan over the next couple of years. So even though here in North America, we've gone through this iteration of, you know, the roundups and the captivity and then the outcry from the public, and now we're at the point where, yeah, you know what? The average person's probably like, you know, we should probably free those animals. Um, it's just kind of starting up. The whole machine is just kind of starting up in China. 
So, mm-hmm. and, and China, of course, is how big is China? What's this like a million? Pardon me, one point four billion people? Is that like I believe so? That? Four times the size of the United States, something like that, right? Yes. So, um, you know, it, it's very, very troubling. I think that um, as it relates to the sea sanctuary um, idea, it, it's it's a marvelous concept, and I obviously support it. Provided that, uh, you know, these sea sanctuaries are placed, uh, geographically correct as far as location, size, uh, what's the staffing, what's the funding, you know, those are obviously key issues, but you, you can't just simply move these creatures out of their, you know, their environments that they're now, you know, used to. And I, I hate to even say that they're used to them because they're so awful, but, it would be wonderful if you think about it. It'd be so wonderful for an animal, uh, especially like Lolita. Uh, she was taken when she was a juvenile, so you know she probably couldn't fend for herself. Although I'm sure she'd just like to spend one day in the wild, even if she died the next day. But if she could be in a sanctuary and at least hear, you know, family members and uh, feel that Pacific Ocean on her body, I think it would be a wonderful thing. I I agree. Um, cool. So that, that was actually going to be my next question was what is your opinion of the orca sanctuary that the whale sanctuary project is attempting to create here in the Salish sea? And you kind of, you kind of (laughs) answered that. Um, well, yeah. And that's, you know, the, the idea in the book was, you know, why can't we do this? All we need is a really strong voice, great leadership, and you know, it can be done. Anything can be done. So I'm a supporter do you think we'll see one within our lifetime? Um, well, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 28. You're probably, a lot, <laughs> probably a lot younger than I am. I, I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I really do. I think that, I think that people are fed up, you know, I really do. I mean, we all have friends, you know, you're obviously, you know, a big supporter of, of the Southern resident killer whales and, Mm-hmm. As am I, and, and you obviously have friends who who know very little. But I bet when you speak about it and you speak passionately about it, your friend you get your attention of your friends, right? And and yeah. that's kind of what it's going to take. I I do think that this can happen. I do. But then you know, but then we have this country called China coming in right behind that's kind of reinventing the nasty wheel, and then Russia is going to be right there too. So. Ah, just it's very disturbing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I agree. It is disturbing. Um yeah, I let's see what I have. I, I, I guess and you kinda answered this question too, but in your book, moneyed interests hold a lot of sway over the fate of James Parker yeah. Wales. Um and in a lot of those moments they act in direct detriment to what is portrayed as the best interest of the whales and, and those trying to free them from captivity. Um, do you, do you ever see that in your own work for killer whale conservation just personally or professionally? Yes, for sure. You know, whenever you talk to different groups, each, um, each group, each stakeholder has their view and their vested interest and conflict abounds, right? I mean, it's, that's the way the capitalist society works. And, yeah. you know, we, you know, it, there's so many great organizations that are doing wonderful things. And, 
Um, there's so many great causes too. And sometimes I wonder, you know, you know, how can you just pick one group and focus on that? But that's what you have right. to do. You can't use this big net and try to just grab everything and, and draw it all in. So, you know, I go back to, um, you know, when these roundups, these captures first started, well, you know, these fishermen that, you know, in the 60s, 1964, these guys that, that caught these whales off Saturna, off East Point, up in Pender Harbor, they were fishermen. They were just trying to make a living. Can you blame them? No, they were just trying to make a living. And then they realized, hey, you know what, we can make a lot of money from this. So, you know, they did what they had to do to survive. And, you know, today, with the knowledge that we have, and, and by the way, we probably wouldn't have the knowledge, we wouldn't have the knowledge that we have, had it not been for captivity. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a two-edged sword, right? But we're smart, and we should be doing the right thing. And keeping them in concrete tanks where they can't properly function, where they become crazy, uh, is wrong. And we need to... We need to somehow change that. And it's not happening fast enough. I agree. For sure. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, so kind of switching gears again, uh, kind of going more into a metaphysical kind of um, sure. setting. Uh, you, you built on this concept of telepathic resonance in your book um, to kind of mm-hmm. describe how you imagine killer whales might communicate with each other. Um, and it's, it's a super cool concept. And I was actually really impressed with it. It just kind of blindsided me when I was reading your book. Um, oh, cool. can you, can you kind of explain how you developed that concept for your book? Sure. Yeah. Great question. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it sounds funny, but, um, I have to admit that the dreams that I did have were very real to me and the, the sharing of the thoughts, were very real as well. And so that's where the idea was born. And I, I did some research. My son's actually a software engineer. So I bounced a lot of things off of him, off of him on the uh, artificial intelligence side and the technology side. And, you know, it, it strikes me that um, just as an aside here that, you know, companies like Google and Apple and so forth, you know, with the cash words that they have and the, and the incredible people that they have, you know, they can probably crack the code. And, and yeah, I, I think that, you know, we can, <laughs> we can probably maybe communicate with these creatures one day, if these creatures want to communicate with us. And that's something that um, I kind of mentioned in the book in a very you subtle did. way kind of in a philosophical way is that, you know, we, we seem to think that we're real, we're really smart, right? We're really smart. We're the smartest creatures on earth, but we're the smartest creatures based on what, based on what we view and mm-hmm. based on our understandings. And we have no idea if there's another platform, another dimension, another level. And we have no idea how the creatures that subsist in those levels or platforms, what they think, how they think, we, we have no idea. And so I'd like to think that, um, yes, I, I, I'm a believer that, you know, all the observations, I've had hundreds of observations of orcas, and there's something going on 
outside of the clicks and whistles and calls. There's something else. There, there is definitely something. I, I don't know what it is, but there's something. So, um, you know, Alexander Morton wrote this amazing book a number of years ago, and it's kind of funny, but, um, she actually touched on potentially a form of telepathic resonance. And I did not read her book before I wrote my book. <laughs> no. Really funny. So when I actually, I haven't met her. Actually, no, I did meet her. Uh, we, we actually met her at Whole Foods the other day, but we're hoping to get her in to speak uh, for us in the spring. And, you know, when I read that, this is after my book had already been published. I thought, you know, other people, I, I thought I was kind of crazy, but other people that I have a lot of respect for, uh, maybe think that there's something more there as well. And you know what? How can you say there isn't? You know, what's really interesting is that for years and years and years, scientists would really hesitate when you would anthropomorphize orcas or elephants or wolves. But I've noticed a, a trending change. I've, mm-hmm. I've actually noticed that, you know, it was Andrew Trites who recently uh, was describing an encounter that they captured with drone footage of a mother and a calf. I think it was J56, the calf. And he was describing the encounter as though they were human-like. And so I thought, good on him. You know what? That's what it's going to yeah. take. Because science has always shunned away from doing that because they're doing experiments on animals and they don't want people to think, oh boy, you know, that's nasty, right? Because mm-hmm. they, you know, they want to think that, you know, those animals can't feel anything. They don't, they don't have feelings. But guess what? They do. And people need to know that. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know if I've ended on a, a, <laughs> a good note there, but... Yeah. I mean, we can't forget about all cetacea, right? And we can't forget mm-hmm. about all mammals in the world. I want to emphasize that. But, you know, when we just talk about cetacea, you know, we're talking, you know, all dolphins. We're talking all whales, sperm whales, blue whales. We're talking about beluga whales. Um, these creatures are smart, really smart. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually really glad you, you brought up, uh, the whole attitude shift on anthropomorphizing because we have, we've actually talked to a couple other people, uh, Gay Bradshaw in particular. We did an episode with her and, and it's totally on, on point. I mean, anthropomorphizing, I mean, it really is just, it really is just us using our baseline and that's all we know. And like, that's, it's no different than me, like maybe projecting my experiences on you to explain what you might be going through. Like I definitely wholly believe that anthropomorphizing is something that we really shouldn't shy away from. Um, I'm really, I'm really glad you brought that up. Cool. Uh, Glad. Glad. (laughs) Hmm. Um, cool. So what, uh, kind of bouncing off of that, maybe what do, what do you think the whales can teach us? Oh, wow, that's, <laughs> that's an open-ended question. Uh, you know, you know, it's funny. Like in my book, I I remember I I used a passage that I had that I had heard many many years ago, and I thought I'm going to use that one day. And 
the passage is something like, you know, um, my dream is to swim with the whales, but that's probably not the whale's dream to swim with a human, right? Mm-hmm. The You know, whales are very aware of us. Um, I'll give you an example. I got to share this with you. So uh, J35, she was the lovely member of J-Pod who carried her dead, stillborn, maybe calf, some, you know, 1,100 miles um, over mm-hmm. a period of maybe 17 days or something like that. And there was obviously something incredible going on there. And, you know, was she trying to share her feelings with creatures outside of her population, meaning humans, meaning other animals? Yeah. I don't know. Her God, who, you know, what, what was she doing? You know, it can't be the first time it's happened. It isn't the first time, but, you know, 17 days is a long, long time. That is a really long time. Here's the kicker. We were on September 10th, 2018, uh, which was only a few weeks after her vigil with her dead calf. Rochelle and I, my wife, we were, um, we were at our secret spot in the Salish Sea. And we knew J-Pod. Well, Rochelle, who's incredible at this, she knew J-Pod was coming. And I was right down on the rocks, and they came. And we had to identify J-35 afterwards, but it was J-35. And she came right up out of the water, and she basically tried to splash me. And... (laughs) You know, like you could say, like, obviously they, you know, you can't see, even if they come up and spy hop at you, you can't really see uh, an expression. They're a dolphin. They look like they're kind of smiling all the time. Right. But mm-hmm. was she, was she happy? Was she, was she feeling better? Was she over it? Was she trying to tell us that? I mean, can we learn something from that? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think there's, uh, I'd like to think that there's a selflessness to these creatures. I'd like to think that um, there are things that lead me to believe that there's a selflessness. And I think that's something as humans that we could, that we could learn. Um, I'm not aware of any um, engagement of, you know, fighting or warfare or anything between, you know, resident populations or transient or or offshore populations. I think they just Mm kind of, they kind of go about their business. You know, there's a real culture to them. Right. So Right. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think on the, uh, on the intelligence side, you know, I'm hoping that, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, science and technology are going to enable us to be able to better understand them and, and ultimately learn something really important that maybe we can apply, uh, to humans. Very cool. Yeah. I, I, I definitely I, think. I definitely, going back to your experience with Talakwa, I, I definitely think a lot of us in the, in the, the field kind of agree that that was really her, her cry for help. Um, and I don't think it's, it's very far out of, far out in left field to say that. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad you feel the same way. Um, yeah. What else yeah. would it be, right? I mean, I think even Joe Gatos, who's a, you know, obviously, you know, Joe, he's a well-known, you know, see that. It specialized yeah. in, you know, the orcas and the pinnipeds and stuff. I think he even mentioned, you know, there's some, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he did mention something <laughs> to that. So, 
to that effect. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's so cool to be able to um, have the time to spend and focus on something that you really believe in and you, that you're passionate about. Um, I'm fortunate that I don't have a, a full-time job and I'm able to support myself in other ways through writing and so forth. But it, it's just so great. And I do get it that, you know, the rest of the world, you know, the other 98.8 or 99.8% of the people in the world, in the first world, are super busy raising families. And I respect that. They're busy working and just trying to put food on the table. But, you know, what comes first, the economy or the environment? Like what, you know, mm. and I put it to you as an American, you know, I think that, um, it doesn't matter what your political, uh, objectives or beliefs are. And I'm not asking you this question, but I think we really need to look at ourselves and say, you know, what kind of a world are we going to leave for our children and our children's children? Yes. It, you know, it's easy to put the blinders on and just go to work every day. And, and I respect that. You have to do that. I was there, you know? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what really drove me to this, um, was, I should share this with you. You know, it comes to mind right now. And I gotta, I gotta say it is that, you know, back in, um, in the early to mid nineties, I had really, really young kids and it was around the mid nineties. And we used to go to the Vancouver public aquarium. I know that's really bad, but that's what we did. No. Um, and we used to go and see Biota in the killer whale tank. And my son, who's, he's on the spectrum anyway, he's out there. He, um, one day he just turned to me and he said, he was like six or seven years old. And he said, this is wrong. She looks sad. And he left. Wow. He just walked away. He just walked away. And oh my God. I will never forget that. I will like, it was, it was, a. A moment in time that I went, wow, you gotta, you gotta respect somebody who's just that's feels that strong, right? Real, yeah. yeah. Especially at such a young age. That's crazy. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I took it seriously. Yeah. Good. Good. Good on him too. Yeah. Um, cool. Just a couple little, little questions left. Um, sure. So originally when I was reading this book and I started reading this book months ago, um, but I didn't really look into where you lived specifically, but you, you really, you talk about orcas as if you know it intimately. So I, for a little bit assumed you were from the San Juans, um, but you actually right. did grow up in, in on Vancouver Island around Victoria and in the Southern Gulf Islands. Why, yeah. why did you, why did you set your story in the San Juans as opposed to the Gulf Islands? Yeah, good question. It just made the story so much more accessible because the San Juans have this rich history with, you know, the lime kilns and, you know, fishing and, it's connected to the United States, which opens up the opportunity to create this network of aquariums. Um, it is way more accessible. So gotcha. that was, that was the reason. Yeah. Very cool. Um, okay. Um, and then last question, I guess, and you kind sure. of touched on this a couple of times, but what has your overall experience with, with the Southern residents been? Has it just been purely from like, 
you you go out to the beach and you watch them sort of thing or or have you have you actually gone out and acted out as like a marine naturalist uh both but primarily um in the areas that we frequent on land uh we uh are always you know we'll do almost anything to to see them whether they're the FRKWs or whether they're transients and try to photograph them and uh, identi- identify them and then share our information with others. Um, we often run into people who are tourists and, or maybe not, maybe they're locals, but they, they really don't know anything and we'll try to share um, what's happening with them, whether they're hunting for a seal or whether they're just passing through active pass maybe, and it's the uh, fish eating Southern residents and they're on their way to the Fraser Um those are the, um, those are the experiences. Um, uh, we don't do much, um, <laughs> by on, on the water now by boat. Um, gotcha. try to stay away from that. It's, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know if I go there, but I'm not against that necessarily. I think that there's, as I try to explain to people, there's, there's so many wonderful, uh, operators, sea captains, uh, well watching tour captains who have been documenting and, and classifying information that's been so useful, you know, over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And they also, uh, you know, at times can provide, uh, a buffer for, uh, recreation yeah. and commercial vehicles. But having said that, it's a really, really dicey subject to get into. And so mm, yep. with, with our, with our uh, society, with our nonprofit, we've just decided to really, to really be, you know, nonpartisan. Just, just, we're just, uh, we're not in the middle of anything, right? We're just, yeah. Gotcha. You're just purely Just increase awareness. You know, that's, that's the key. I think it's just, you know, put everything on the table, make it transparent and people can make up their own minds. Right. Gotcha. And Salish Sea Orca Squad, that's your, that's your nonprofit, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah, we're we're registered and licensed in uh, the province of British Columbia, and uh, our goal is simply to increase awareness. and And how we do that will be dictated by our board of directors. But we're going to be doing a speaker series starting um, in the spring of next year. So nice. I look forward yeah. to hearing about that. That sounds yeah, well, super maybe cool. We'll yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I think that would be really cool. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Anything you, any questions you have for us or, uh, no, I, I thank you very much for having me on. And I think your questions were were really uh, timely. I'm sorry if I kind of wandered on there for a little bit, but um, (laughs) no, that's perfect. Whatever comes into your head that you think is important. You want to get it out. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, very cool. Well, I thank you so much for for coming on here and talking to me. Um, 